So good morning, everyone. Just want to extend the welcome that Butters gave out, um, especially if you're new here, especially if this isn't what you'd normally do on a, on a Sunday morning. So thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to me. This morning, we're going to continue in our One Objection series. Uh, this is where we put out a survey saying, what's your key objection to the Christian faith? And I think about one in five uh, said this, that science has disproved God. So that's what we're going to look at. Now, it is a huge topic, and it covers a myriad of scientific disciplines. I'm also aware that there's a range of scientific backgrounds here and scientific education. So for some of you, there's going to be too much scientific language, and for some of you, there's going to be far too little. Nevertheless, I hope today that I can present you with something that you can at least all think on, and I'm going to give you three instances of where out of emptiness, everything came. So that's going to be what we're looking at. So I also want to bust apart some myths, namely this one, that somehow faith and science are opposed in a centuries-long struggle ever since we discovered that we weren't the center of the universe. Or perhaps with the ever-growing advancement of scientific discovery, and the loud voice of new atheism, that you might actually think the struggle looks more like this. <laughs> that somehow, with scientific advancement, we are eventually going to push out faith outside of the ring and into obscurity. So, before we begin, I might uh, give you a bit of background in terms of why might I have been chosen to, to give this talk. Um, I mean, I know some of you are thinking it's because he's got the most exciting voice, but, you know. <laughs> can't believe you laughed there. It hurts. <laughs> really hurts. <laughs> so, I'm a geek. I love science. I love graphs. I love spreadsheets. I love scientific data that you can put in a spreadsheet and make it into a graph. I graduated with uh, honors in pharmacology. Uh, I then went on to do a PhD in cellular physiology, and I wrote a 90,000-word thesis called Two Poor Calcium Channels and Nicotinic Acid Adenine Dinucleotide Phosphate Dependent Calcium Signaling. (laughs) 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 And you'd be right in your assumption that, yes, not even my parents have read it. And I've been involved in science ever since. However, what I think is probably more pertinent to today's talk and why I might have been chosen is that my wife would probably describe me as more like this. That I'm an Eeyore character. That I'm a cynic. That I don't just buy things because you tell me to. That I don't just accept things and I look at the world around me and I doubt certain things to be true. And I think many of us here today are like that also. For instance, I don't believe in this saying, that if you believe in yourself, anything is possible. Utter rubbish. (laughs) You can believe in yourself all you want. I can believe that I'm going to be a professional sportsman. It is utter rubbish. (laughs) Believing in yourself is not going to make you a pro singer, a pro sports person. It's not going to make you rich, and it's not going to make you satisfied. I don't believe that these glasses are going to make me as excited and as happy as the people in that picture there. 
I don't believe that this board game will make my family as... No family alive has ever been as happy <laughs> as the people presented in the Game of Life board game. And finally, I don't think I'm going to be as excited as this chap is here to receive my new flip charts. <laughs> Unless I can draw a graph on it, maybe. I, <laughs> I also don't believe that this painting was worth the $40 million that someone paid for it. Forty million. I mean, at least there's two shades of blue there, so you, you know, you're getting a bit of value for money. Yeah, someone paid $40 million for that. So I'm a cynic. But when I was 17 or 18, I dared to look up, and I realized that I wasn't the one voice of reason in a room full of idiots. I was an arrogant teen. <laughs> but I realized I wasn't the king, and I realized there was someone else that was far more deserving of that place in my life. What's more is he gave me the best explanation for my view of the world and my experience of it. So that's probably why I've been asked to talk to you for the next few minutes. Science has disproved faith. This is a, a common objection, and I think it's often thrown out there by people who don't uh, or haven't looked into it, perhaps because an alternative might prove to be uncomfortable. And it is a view that is proudly proclaimed by new atheism as an irrefutable truth, which it isn't. So, our first emptiness giving rise to everything in the beginning in the early 20th century, it was discovered that contrary to popular and scientific opinion, the observable universe wasn't in an eternal static state. Yes, there was orbits and galaxies would swirl and there was movement within it, but opinion at that time thought that the universe was in an eternal state. However, it was discovered that the universe was expanding, which importantly meant that it had a beginning. And this became known, as I'm sure you're all aware, as the Big Bang. But just think about it. Everything material in the universe, the trillions of stars, many bigger than our own, all began in this infinitely small dot. It's not even that we had a framework of space and time that was set in which the universe could expand into. Everything, space and time, began in that infinitely small dot. So this is our first emptiness where everything comes from. To many at the time, it seemed unfathomable. And initially, the, the Big Bang is actually a term that was given to, to mock the theory. However, it entirely matched up with the biblical, biblical account that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as a human race, we've discovered many rules by which the universe operates. In more recent years, we've discovered how in accordance to those rules, the universe has expanded. Many physical laws that are always true, that are always constant, regardless of where in the universe you are. They must remain true if we are to build upon and investigate our scientific understanding. For example, this was a, a really helpful article that said, it takes 26 fundamental constants, and these are dimensionless constants, to give us our universe. Now, all of these constants have to be exactly as they are with little or no variation if our universe is to operate as it does. Granted, they might not all be mutually exclusive, but there does exist an extraordinary level of refinement. For example, the explosion at the start had to be at the correct speed and magnitude for the expansion and cooling to just generate hydrogen and helium. But not only just to generate hydrogen and helium, but to create them at the right ratio 
because these are the building blocks of stars. Eventually, gravity, again, finely balanced, would pull clouds of atoms together to form stars and galaxies. Now, the last constant on the slide is the cosmological constant. You might have heard of it, and you might have heard of it referred to as dark energy. So this is a description of it uh, that I've taken from CERN's website, the CERN of the Hadron Collider fame. It says, an even more mysterious form of energy, called dark energy, accounts for about 70% of the mass energy content of the universe. Even less is known about it than dark matter. This idea stems from the observation that all galaxies seem to be receding from each other at an accelerating pace, implying that some invisible extra energy is at work. Now, this dark energy is throughout the universe and effectively pushes galaxies apart and stops the universe collapsing in on itself. If the universe had even slightly more of this, then it would have expanded too quickly and we wouldn't have had the formation of stars and galaxies. So how much more would have been too much? The precision of dark energy has is debated, but there are sort of two rough estimates that are out there, and that is if you adjusted it by one part in 10 to the 56, or in one part 10 to the 120. Now, I've put the lower number there. So what one part in that number, and it would have been too much. We wouldn't have actually had stars or galaxies form. Now, I think we can also be quite glib when we come across the big numbers. So I, I borrowed this uh, little example from um, someone trying to explain the US national debt. <laughs> so, some of you may know that I borrowed a book from Matt. And there is a, there's a hot debate between the difference between long-term borrowing and outright theft. So... <laughs> If I said, Matt, I will give your book back in a million seconds, that's about 11 and a half days from now. If I said, Matt, I'm going to give your book back in a billion seconds, that's 32 years from now. And if I said, Matt, I was going to give your book back in a trillion seconds, that's 32,000 years from now. It's probably closer to a billion. <laughs> <laughs> So when we look at this slide here, 1 million is 10 to the 6, 1 billion is 10 to the 9, and 1 trillion is 10 to the 12. So when we say that the precision of the cosmological constant is somewhere between 10 to the 56 and 10 to the 120, you realize how finely tuned that was. And that's just to form stars and planets, let alone life on Earth. We somehow need to account all the fact that all the physical matter of the universe, with all its laws and constants, came from nothing. The sudden appearance and expansion of the universe with such fine-tuning is so incredibly improbable that effectively it all boils down to one of two conclusions. What we have is no one really believes that it just appeared, it was so finely tuned, and that was just so exceptionally lucky when we look at how improbable it is. So we have to do something like increase the scope in which luck can operate. So more throws of the dice to get the right number to come out. And that you may have heard of as being something like the multiverse theory, where we have either multiple or an infinite number of universes so that one of them happens to have the right constants in the right balance, which just happens to be ours. Or... The level of fine-tuning suggests that there might be 
a fine tuner behind it. It tends to boil down to those two conclusions. However, I'd also suggest that the multiverse doesn't necessarily answer that problem. I think it just shifts it along. We would still need physical laws and physical constants to govern a multiverse. What mechanism do you have for a universe popping into and out of existence? What controls the multiverse? I would hazard a guess that the constants and physical laws that govern that would be as equally fine-tuned as our universe, if not more so. Or perhaps there's even a multiverse creator. Now, the appearance of all material things from a Christian stance is answered by an intelligent, uncreated, transcendent being, God the Creator, immaterial, giving rise to the material. But ultimately, neither of these can be proved scientifically. Perhaps some hope that we would make some form of technological or scientific advance and somehow work out what happened at the beginning or how a multiverse is governed. But I think this is a bit of a logical gap in that we would be using all of the laws to determine something, or all the laws of our system, our universe, to determine something outside of that system. To sort of stretch an analogy a bit, it would be like Romeo trying to prove that Shakespeare did or didn't exist. So, an invisible and provable start to the universe cannot be proven either way. There is no evidence for a multiverse. It's merely a way of explaining just how incredibly lucky we are if there's no God. Both creator and multiverse are faith positions. So, that's one beginning. How about another? Life on Earth. Now, before I begin on this section, I should point out that in preparing for this, I've read various interpretations and readings of the opening sections of Genesis. And I would say that in general, most people's opinions or readings fall into one of ten categories. And those ten categories tend to fall into one of three broader camps. So we have young earth theory, we have old earth theory, and then on the far side we have evolutionary theism, which is effectively old earth but with a God-inspired evolution. Now, there are arguments, both scientific and uh, theological, for and against each one. Uh, And I'll happily chat to you offline (laughs) about the specifics. But as this talk is about engaging people who believe in a material world and do not believe in God, I think for the rest of this talk, we will assume that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and that the process of natural selection resulted in an incredible biodiversity on this planet. Which brings us to the second emptiness from which everything came. About 3.8 billion years ago, the Earth was bleak. It was a lifeless planet. It was empty. But before we even engage with anything like the process of natural selection, we have to have abiogenesis. That is the origin of life. There is constant debate about the probability of forming cells, cellular precursors, or self-folding peptides. And we seem to enter this sort of battle of the geeks, whereby you read more arguments, more counter-arguments, rebuttals, and some pretty aggressive uh, articles. I'm also aware that the numbers that get bandied around about the improbability vary dramatically. They're often misquoted, misunderstood, and misrepresented be it theists who will latch hold of the massive numbers of improbability and sort of present this as a a fait accompli, or 
atheists who latched on to the lower numbers and showed just how probable it all was. And in preparing for this talk, I never, ever, ever, ever want to read anything more about the thermodynamics of peptide folding ever again. (laughs) (laughs) However, I do want to draw your attention before we move on to a series of articles by a uh, professor of synthetic organic chemistry uh, chemistry called James Tor. Now, he doesn't claim to be a proponent of intelligent design, but he does raise many doubts over the claims that, given time, all the necessary precursors would have formed naturally. So I've, I've put up here a summary of his problems of synthesis. Put simply, there are four molecules needed for life, nucleotides, carbohydrates, proteins, and lipids, all of which require highly complex routes of synthesis, which he details are incredibly unlikely to have occurred in prebiotic Earth. More importantly, and something was new, was that he also states that some of the steps in the synthesis would actually be hindered by time rather than helped. Now, time, in terms of an um, atheistic view of abiogenesis, has always been the hero. <coughs> given enough time, given enough rolls of the dice, <coughs> we would have natural and spontaneous formation of these precursors. However, this... Uh, The series of articles would suggest that life is not such a guaranteed outcome given enough time and without intelligent intervention. So regardless of this fact, I believe in intelligent intervention. I also believe in a God who works and is happy to work in both the improbable and the probable. So this abiogenesis doesn't really pose me a quandary as much as it would do an atheist. So off we go. 3.8 billion years ago, our planet was bleak, devoid of the most basic life form, not even the smallest of cells, just minerals and molecules in the forms of rock, salts, gas, and water, an empty nothingness. But fast forward 3.8 billion years, and we have cells. Cells everywhere. All the living, complex things that you see around you are made of cells. You are, on average, made of 37 trillion cells, each one containing about 42 million proteins. Each cell contains about two meters of DNA. This DNA obviously gets packed down so small that you can't see it, and it consists of a four-letter code consisting of three and a half billion letters. Not only do we have these complex factories, far more complex than uh, a factory than we will ever make, but they're capable of replicating and passing on this information, this code, to the next generation. This complexity ultimately reaches its peak in us, creatures capable of consciousness, language, imagination, invention, creativity, wonder, ethical debate, love, hate, and determining which queue in the supermarket is likely to go down quickest. (laughs) Although I'm not very good at that. The fact that all of this biodiversity that we see is generated by different patterns and lengths of this language of DNA, to me, also suggests the presence of something capable of originating information or a language. (coughs) For many, it's the self-awareness. The mind is sufficient evidence for creator God. For others, it's just simply the cold outworking of natural selection. And unfortunately, in terms of mind versus matter, there's not time this morning to go into that debate. However, even when we look at the basic method of natural selection, it suggests a level of fine-tuning. As the theoretical physicist John Polkenhorne, 
who is also an evolutionary theist, states, there is a balance between chance and necessity. Too rigid and nothing would have changed. Too free and nothing would develop. So at all stages, be it the universe and its expansion, abiogenesis or natural selection, the mechanism doesn't steer us away from the possibility of God. This isn't a mechanistic question, it's a philosophical one. It's not how did we get here, but but why did life originate on Earth? Are we winners of a lottery, of a universe that expanded in just such a way that's held to constants that support the formation of stars and planets that are capable of sustaining life? That the building blocks for cells spontaneously uh, and naturally came about? And that natural selection ultimately ended up in us? Or does that fine-tuning of both the universe and biology give the idea of a creator plausibility? We need the most brilliant minds to determine how our universe operates, yet to some it's unpalatable to consider that a brilliant mind might be behind it. Now I think that if you can nudge the plausibility of God, even a fraction, then it is worth exploring the claims of Jesus as the implications on your life is far greater than the numbers that we've been showing up on the screen. Why is it important to jump straight from universe to life on earth to Jesus? Well, I think this quote in Glenn Scrivener's book sums it up nicely. It says this, We are the flotsam of a cosmic explosion and biological survival machines, wet robots, clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. Still, all that being said, the new flavoured latte from Starbucks is incredible. (laughs) And have you tried hot yoga? And we're renovating the kitchen, you know, so that's that's nice. As the annihilating tsunami of time bears down on us, we obsess over our sandcastles, the promotion, the holiday, the new gadget, and we dare not look up. And I just say this morning, we need to look up. If atheism is right, then this is the best it ever gets. Or perhaps 20 years ago was the best it ever got. Realistically, you're young and you are fit and you are devoid of responsibility. That burger, that holiday, that sexual experience, that drunken night with your mates, that Champions League winning night if you're a Liverpool fan, or the 1969 Intercity Fairs Cup if you're a Newcastle fan. (laughs) And they wonder why I'm cynical. (laughs) Or perhaps it's more wholesome things. Your wedding day, a relationship, a job, the birth of your first child. That's it. That's the pinnacle of your human experience. Whatever it was, and I hope it was recent, it's downhill from there. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) However, if Christianity is true, then this life and all of its experiences is as bad as it's ever going to be. We are barely in the foothill of what joy can mean. As the author of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, said, there is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true and none which so many sceptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. There are 17 documents from the first century mentioning the resurrection of Jesus, written by seven different people. It's clear that the people at the time responded to this and believed it, and it changed their lives. There's no evidence at the same time contradicting it. No one says, well, they did think that, but we found the body, so hey... The absence of any contradictory accounts doesn't prove anything, but it's highly supportive. 
The disciples were not motivated to lie about it. It was a difficult path, and many of them were tortured and killed for the statements they made. The only reason that they continued to hold to these beliefs is that they believed them to be true. These followers were despised by their own and Jewish authorities alike. They didn't control the historical narrative. They weren't perceived as the winners who could control recorded history, nor was there the opportunity for the myth or embellishment to develop, as that bold doctrine of Christ's resurrection came too soon after the events for this to have occurred. As Andrew Wilson points out rather more eloquently in his book, he says this, the bottom line is, if we rummage around the first century for evidence about whether the resurrection happened, and if we then find that all the relevant documents say that Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish artisan-turned-prophet, who was executed by Romans on Friday the 7th of April, AD 30, rose bodily from the dead on the Sunday, then I think we have a responsibility to try and find an explanation. There are two conclusions from the evidence. The tomb of Jesus was empty on the morning of Sunday the 9th of April, and over the next few weeks, a number of different people saw appearances of Jesus, which they understood to mean that he had risen from the dead. So whatever we believe about these appearances, they are too many and to too great a number of people for them to be easily dismissed. And let's not patronize our first century ancestors to suggest that they didn't know all too well that dead people stayed dead. So like I said, we need to account for an empty tomb. Some people have tried to account for this, giving alternatives. Three of them can be summed up with nobody checked, or they went to the wrong tomb, or the authorities hid the body. Again, let's remember that this was a dangerous sect of Christ followers who were despised by both the Jews for blasphemy and the Romans for putting anyone higher than Caesar. Both had the ability, if they could find it to present the body and that would have killed Christianity dead in its tracks so I don't think that has much merit another alternative for the empty tomb is that Jesus wasn't really dead now if history tells us anything about the Romans it's they were really good at killing people Jesus had been beaten his back had been lacerated his hands and feet had been pierced to a cross where he was hung up and he asphyxiated over six hours then just for good measure A spear was thrown into his side to pierce his heart. If he wasn't dead, then somehow in the tomb, without any intervention from even the most rudimentary medicine, he recovered miraculously, able to roll away a stone, appear to lots of people, and then disappear into thin air. I don't think that is a good account for the empty tomb. And then finally, an alternative is the disciples stole it. Now, following the resurrection, Jesus appeared to many people, Some who had worshipped him and followed him before he had died, and some after. But whether they'd been in it from the beginning or not, many people were tortured and killed for for refusing to deny that Jesus had died for them and had risen from the dead. Now, I can think of many people who would die for believing in something that's greater than themselves. I can think of many people who would die just for a belief but I can't think of anyone who would die for a lie that they themselves had concocted, especially not dozens. Historians from both sides of the God debate land on two historical fixed points, the empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth. And they, like you and me, have to find the best explanation to fit the evidence. For me, it's documented that Jesus of Nazareth said he would die and he would rise again. 
The tomb was empty and many people witnessed his appearances in the subsequent weeks. His followers, both new and old, died and were tortured for the belief that he died for all of us and was resurrected. Being hated, they didn't have the political means to propagate any lies, and the time frame was too short for the deity mythology to have occurred. They could, nor could they have corroborated on a good story. Now this, for me, combined with the fine-tuning of the universe, the extravagance of the universe, the phenomenal machinery of single cells, and my personal experience of a loving God, combined with the desperate problems with the world that's not going to be saved by science, positive thinking, or believing in ourselves, and hoping that somehow we're going to make some form of technological advancement that is going to stop humanity choosing money, sex, and power again and again and again. For me, this was the third emptiness from which everything came. Out of this tomb came a resurrected Christ, and with him, an answer to suffering, greed, lust, abuse, injustice, my own terrible decisions, and death. It is the aggregate of my experiences. You assess the evidence and come up with the explanation that has the most explanatory power. What best fits the total? It's why biologists believe in evolution, despite not being able to observe it in a controlled environment. Why we believe Emily Bronte wrote Wuthering Heights. Why we believe Napoleon was a French military leader. And why we believe goji berries are absolutely disgusting. (laughs) I don't believe in a God of the gaps, that God is an explanation that's waiting for science to paint over it. I believe a God of the whole canvas upon which creation is painted. A God who's just not afraid of, of... or scared of scientific discovery of his mechanisms. Instead, he's given us consciousness, creativity, and ingenuity to explore the rules and express ourselves in response to the experiences that we have. So are science and faith opposed? Well, I would say yes, but only in as much as your finger and thumb are opposed. Each is required for you to properly grapple with your experiences of the world around you and the people who are in it. Perhaps more importantly... Both are required to grapple with your purpose and wonder at who gave you that purpose. So what now? I'm going to say, if you're a Christian here this morning, have confidence and love science. As the former director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, Francis Collins said, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. Engage with science. Read into it. This debate changes as new evidence comes to light. Read into it by people who are better informed than me, the likes of William Lane Craig, John Polkinghorne, James Torr, Dennis Alexander, John Lennox, Alistair McGrath. I say if you're not a Christian, keep asking questions. Thank you for asking questions. Keep asking them. But I would challenge you and say that, like all good science scientists, you should be prepared to react to the evidence put in front of you This might mean just asking better, more refined questions. And if I've piqued your interest, then I've got a great book to get you started, and I'll happily give you a free copy. And to everyone, I'm very happy to answer any questions at the end and go into more detail if you wish. Thank you for listening.